Now, the sensitive among you will be no doubt acutely aware that the pollen season has arrived. <coughs> oh, dear. Uh, certainly if you live among the, the plane trees in places like Melbourne and Sydney, oh, the appalling things, pollen, from, from its, its mildest effects to extreme irritation and eyes that sting for three months of the year and, and coughing up trichrome fibres while trying to enjoy a cafe latte. And it can even be more severe. But pollen is arguably one of the most universally reviled features of the plant world. It's true. Uh, it may therefore come as a surprise uh, that beside its importance in nature, pollen... Pollen has proven marvellously useful to human society, and as my next guest explains in a in a recent piece in the London Review of Books that was beautifully titled "Aha: Plant Detectives, Pollen Can Fight Crime." Uh, Liam Shaw is a welcome-funded research fellow at the McLean Lab in Oxford, researching bacterial genetics. Liam, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. I, I wondered if we could we could start with a, a word of the day contender. C can you define for me, please, Liam, uh, palinomorphs? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is the name for basically very small bits of um, dust, basically. That's what it comes from. And the sort of dust that you have in your house, a good deal of the organic component of that dust is going to be made up of pollen and also spores, so from plants and fungi. And polynomorphs are those small bits of stuff that are, are produced by plants and fungi, and they're very, very varied in their shapes. And those shapes are what allow pollen to be used in solving crimes, because the exact shape of pollen varies by species. And so you can look at pollen under a microscope and work out where somebody might have been from that. Uh, and, and, and some of those shapes are quite extraordinary. I'm, I'm quite taken, for example, in, in pine pollen. Yes, so pine pollen has um, two air bladders attached to the top of it, and those are to help it be dispersed through the air. So that's part of why pine pollen is particularly bad for hay fever sufferers, because you'll really breathe it in when the pine are releasing their pollen. But those two air bladders stuck to the top of it make it look a bit like Mickey Mouse under <laughs> the microscope. And this is, of course, just the beginning of the extraordinary and varied world of pollen. Exactly. So... There really are a baffling diversity of shapes of pollen. And the reason for those shapes can depend on their dispersal. So I mentioned pine pollen has these air bladders so that it can float through the air. So pollen, which tends to be dispersed by floating through the air on the wind, will be more spherical or have these uh, air bladders attached. But then some pollen prefers to disperse through animals. So it will have lots of hooks and spines to attach to fur. And there really are thousands upon thousands of varied uh, types of pollen. Some of them vary very clearly between species, but then some of them are very, very similar between related species. So you really have to be an expert and have years of training looking down the microscope in order to be able to distinguish these species apart. And there will, at some point in the near future, I imagine, be a TV series starring a, a forensic scientist whose speciality is making conclusions about crime by comparing samples of pollen, because this this is a thing. 
Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And it's been a thing um, for, I would say, a few decades now. But, um, I mean, it has featured in some forensic novels. People may, uh, people may be aware of some. I know there's one by Stephanie Kane called Seeds of Doubt, where um, someone says that they're going to use a forensic botanist. That's the name of this specialty. <laughs> but it really, it really came about more from the police forces uh, asking botanists for help rather than people training specifically in forensic science and, and applying it to botany. So many of the people who have worked in this area are not uh, trained forensic scientists in that sense. They started off in botany or environmental sciences and then gradually moved into helping the police force. I want you to, to take us to a couple of those cases in a moment, but let's go back a little bit further to begin. Who was Edmond Locard? So Edmond Locard was a French um, scientist, and he's credited with being the father of forensic science. Um, and that's because in 1912 in Lyon, in France, he founded the first police forensic laboratory. And he was very interested in this idea which he formulated, which is often summarized as every contact leaves a trace. Hmm. So every time you touch something, uh, there's going to be an interaction between those two things, you and the object, and you'll leave some trace of you behind and you'll pick up a trace of the object. And he was fascinated by this idea that you could use that to look at crime scenes and reconstruct what had happened in a sort of Sherlock Holmes way or um, perhaps Inspector Magrette, um, if people like Georges Simenon, who's a French <laughs> crime novelist. Indeed. Well, and Lacard himself was was no slouch, of course. There's the, there is a famous case involving murder and a dandelion. Yes, so he wrote these voluminous textbooks on forensic science where he listed all of these cases, um, some of which he himself had solved. And this case uh, involved a man who'd been murdered in the countryside outside Lyon. And so they rounded up some suspects and Lockard was involved in the investigation. And he looked at the suspects and noticed that one of them had uh, a dandelion seed caught up in the fabric of his coat. And then he noticed that because he was also interested in botany, this dandelion seed was from not the common dandelion <laughs> species that was found in many different places, but actually a, a rarer species. And he'd noticed that there was a plant of this rarer species near to where the body of the corpse had been found. So he used that detail to claim that this man had definitely been at the scene of the crime because he had this dandelion seed from this rare species. Now, it's true that also there was actually a blood stain on the man's coat, which was also suggestive too, too of the fact that he'd uh, murdered. But it's that fascination with the tiny detail that would escape the, the untrained eye that he was fascinated with. I could just see him twirling, which I assume are his, his voluminous moustaches as he... <laughs> Announces his <laughs> conclusions. Uh, this takes us to interesting case of Patricia Wiltshire. Now, you you describe her as to quote you one of the pioneers of the picture of place approach. Tell us about both of those things, Patricia, and the picture of place. So Patricia Wiltshire is an amazing scientist and she wrote a memoir in 2019 called Traces, which I would highly recommend to people, even if you're not interested in true crime, which I myself am not. It's a really well-written account of her life and her work. And she had a very interesting career where she 
only went to university as a mature student in her late 20s and studied microbiology and um, got really fascinated with that. And then she started work as an environmental archaeologist. So she would go along to archaeological digs all around uh, Britain and use her knowledge of pollen that she'd acquired to, to tell the archaeologists things about, you know, what were the Romans eating at that particular site and so on. And she did that for, for many years. Um, but then one day she got a call from a police service in the UK and they'd found somebody dead and they wanted to, a way to prove that a car that they suspected had been used to transport the body had actually been at the scene where the man was found. And somebody thought, oh, well, because the body was found in a field, maybe there was some pollen around. I think they, the idea might have occurred to them from seeing something on TV or whatever. But uh, So they phoned up Kew Gardens, which is the botanical gardens in London. And Kew Gardens said, well, we're not able to help you, but we suggest Patricia Wiltshire. So before that, she'd had no involvement with the police at all. And she was, I think, in her 50s at this point. <laughs> and so she was given access to the car and she didn't know what to do. She wasn't a forensic scientist, but she treated it as if it was a piece of archaeology. So she got all of the things like the carpets and the footwells and scrubbed things off the handles and so on, and got all of this dirt and mixed it up and used acids to dissolve away soil, and then spread out all of these uh, pollen grains that were left and had a look. And she could see lots of pollen. And what she was able to do with this picture of place idea is that she looks under the microscope and painstakingly counts every single uh, pollen grain that she finds and classifies it into a species. And then she gradually builds up a list of the species that are present in that sample. She's able to work out a picture in her mind of what's going on. So as she did it for this uh, sample, she was able to build up, you know, there were species like hawthorn and blackthorn and bramble. So she was slowly accumulating that picture of a hedgerow in a field. And then the extraordinary thing that she writes about in her memoir is that she went out to the field where the body had been found and the police said, would you like us to tell you where the body was found? She said, no, no, no. I, I can do this. So she walked around the hedgerows and just when it felt right to her and the match was exactly what she'd seen in the pollen, she said, I think it was here. And they said, that's absolutely right. Now, perhaps we should take that with a grain of salt because maybe there were other <laughs> subconscious cues about the fact her body had been there. I don't know. But it's certainly true that she has this amazing feat where she can accumulate a picture of somewhere that she's never been in her mind's eye just through looking at pollen. I am now casting uh, Patricia Wiltshire as, as the star of my forthcoming pollen detective series. It's, it's, she would be great. It'll be, be the new character. Vera. <laughs> <laughs> this this takes us to another aspect of the nature of pollen, which is its extraordinary durability. Yes, so pollen is, or the outer edge of pollen is made from a substance called sporopollenin, and that's one of the toughest organic materials it's often described as. Now, sporopollenin is not really one thing. It's actually uh, trying to understand its material composition. Um, it turns out that it's what, what we call a complex biopolymer. 
And that just means it's a whole jumble of stuff that's molecularly joined together um, and they're cross-linked and that makes it very, very tough. And it can last for a huge amount of time and it's very, very resistant to damage. And so that means that even cold forensic cases that, you know, there's been decades since the, you know, the coat was collected or whatever, you can look uh, and if as long as they haven't been shaken out, uh, if there are pollen grains there, they'll survive. And pollen has even been found um, 100 million years ago, you know, in fossils. You can actually still see organic remnants of pollen clinging to a bee's legs from the Cretaceous period. So it really is extraordinarily durable. Which explains its its behaviour of the human nose and throat, I suppose. (laughs) Yes. So every time you breathe in, as anyone with hay fever will know when there's a lot of pollen in the air you're breathing in huge amounts of uh, pollen so all, all sorts of dust and things just get drawn in and what we have inside our noses are these delicately curled plates of bone which are called the nasal turbinates and those are covered in sticky mucus and the job of that is to try and trap the the things that are coming in and stop them getting into your lungs but that means that if a person dies, their nasal turbinates will contain a record of the last time that they drew breath and drew air up into those. And so if you are a forensic scientist, what you can do is wash out the nasal turbinates of a corpse and catch the pollen grains that come out and have a look and see if there's anything there that can shed some light on the last moments that that person was alive. And there's a case that Patricia Wiltshire talks about uh, where a man had been murdered and uh, looking at the pollen grains from his nasal turbinates actually showed that there were some fungal spores as well, which consistent with fungi that live in soil and are only found sort of in the top layer of soil so actually he had this showed that he had been still alive when he was being basically buried and put into the soil so it's a bit grim but that yes. was very important because it showed that you know the people who had murdered him had like been fully conscious that he was dying as they were burying him one thing I can conclude from our conversation, Liam, is that it's simply not worth it trying to kill people. You there's too many too many ways in which your 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 deeds. Yeah, can be... I mean, so so I I personally find true crime very very disturbing because I really don't like the thought of all of this stuff, and I'm very squeamish as well. Um, but I think that you know. Unfortunately, that having read all of this stuff and thought about um, how people are able to get away with these things, the the main way that I think people get away with it is if the crime scene has been sort of um, irreparably tampered with or, or mm. ruined. So if some samples have been collected at the right time and in the right way, then you're going to be in trouble because there will be a trace there. But if time has passed and so on, or other people have been there and there's enough confusion, then that's the kind of thing that um, that allows the forensic evidence to be just not not possible to, to convict you. You, you write, and I'm, I'm very taken with this thought, you write that, quote, pollen is halfway in scale between its own atomic structure and the world we experience. Tell us about that idea. So... If we imagine that, you know, 
a human, we're about a metre in size, give or take. Obviously, you know, more like two metres for most of us, but of the order of <laughs> a metre. That's to say. <laughs> now, part, yeah, pollen is something like 10 microns in diameter, typically. So that's about 10 to the minus five metres. So it's about 100,000 times smaller than a human. And that's just a very rough estimate. And then if you think of atoms, those are 100,000 times smaller again than pollen. They're about 10 to the minus 10 meters in diameter. So as pollen is to us, atoms are to pollen. So they really are a sort of bridge between the atomic world and the world of normal things that we're used to interacting with in objects. So the two things we've, we've learned about and been discussing, palynology and, and this other extraordinary branch of science, forensic botany, on, on that last, Liam, a, 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 an example of a case in, involving that, and perhaps the, the, the Lindberghs might be a good example? Yes, so this is often given as one of the earliest examples of forensic botany. So in 1932, Charles Lindbergh Jr. was kidnapped uh, and went missing from the family home, and the Lindberghs were one of the most famous and uh, families in America at the time. So there was huge public interest in the case, and uh, eventually the, uh, the child was found dead, and so it became a murder investigation. And the forensic botany aspect was that a homemade wooden ladder had been found, which had been used to climb up to the building, to the, I think it was the second floor maybe, where the child was taken from. And this homemade wooden ladder, you know, had deliberately not been made from, you know, not bought from a shop or whatever. Whoever used it had constructed it themselves to avoid detection. And... There was one suspect and that the police had, and they found that in his attic, there were some floorboards, which, according to a forestry expert, who was an expert in wood, exactly matched the composition of the wooden ladder. So the idea was that some of these were missing, and the suspect must have used them to construct the ladder. And that was used as crucial evidence that was used to convict um the suspect. Now, I should say that there's actually a lot of controversy over that case about whether this was the true suspect. Um, and I don't know enough about the, you know, the analysis of the wood involved to say whether that was accurate or not. But that's certainly one of the most high profile cases um, in the 1930s that involved forensic botany. And what all these cases go to is is that is that science, that science of botany, which... Uh, as you tell in your in your in your piece, is is a thing under well, it's it, it's not faring well as a discipline in in particularly in, in in UK higher education. That's my assessment. I don't know how it is in Australia, but it's generally thought of as a bit of an older science. So this idea that you go out into the world and you learn yourself these complex rules for classifying things and you memorize big lists and the pure taxonomic classification so deciding mm. which thing is a species and which things are subspecies and being able to put things into that great system that as a skill is is sort of something that largely is dying out i think and that's my impression from talking to colleagues who work uh, in botany departments as well and so 
in the UK, for example, um, you can't do a standalone undergraduate degree in botany or in mycology, which is um, the study of fungi. So you can do a degree in plant sciences, but as one botanist pointed out, if you're an undergraduate, you can complete that degree and not be able to identify a single British wildflower. Now, you'll know a lot of other things as well. The reason that taxonomic classification has been edged out, as it were, is because of the huge increases in knowledge that we've had from things like DNA sequencing or cell biology and the study of plants. So you still know a huge amount. It's just mm. that that kind of classical botany of walking out in a meadow and saying, ah, oh, this is this and, you know, that's that. That has kind of fallen by the wayside. But I should say that amateur botany, I think, is still going very strong. And people use apps on their phone to identify trees and plants. You know, my mum has one and that's something she really likes. So I think, you know, rumours of its demise are probably exaggerated. But certainly in a higher education sense, it's something that the field of botany has just changed a lot from those classical days. It's a serious thing, though. I mean, and to quote the likes of, say, Robert McFarlane, who's written on this this particular area, the, the things that we cannot name in a strange sense cease to be. Um, and and that, that's where that sort of recall of that, that glorious 19th century taxonomy is, is an important thing. Yes, I think that's right. And it may be, you know, now that we we believe we have access to so much information through the internet, but there can actually be arcane knowledge that's only in a, an old textbook that nobody's bothered to convert into a digital form or put into an AI, you know, image recognition thing. So if you're interested in the classification of diatoms, which are um, small plankton structures, so they're useful for underwater crimes you know if you find a body in a lake <laughs> yes. uh, one of my colleagues who works who um, who has a phd in environmental forensics told me that often the species classifications for those were sorted out by germans in the 19th century so you actually have to return to a massive 19th century textbook to and read it in german to in order to understand what that diversity is that you're looking at. Knowledge has a price. Liam, thank you. What a, a, a fascinating world of, of small but distinct and intriguing things. And, and our new our new crime series, The, the Pollen Detective, will shortly be on streaming services. <laughs> thank you. Liam Shaw, uh, Wellcome-funded research fellow at McLean Lab in Oxford, researching bacterial genetics... It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.